nonprofit leaders are by disposition a pretty optimistic lot. You believe that with time, energy, smarts, strategy, resources, and absolute sheer force of will, you can change the world in some real and tangible way. That is what I just love about nonprofit leaders. So imagine when I suggest to a fearly determined, optimistic leader that they think that they actually need to think about the worst possible thing that could befall their nonprofit. It's really hard to get them to go there. But go there you must, because if you have not experienced a crisis, it's probably not because you're good. It's more likely that it just hasn't happened yet. And so today I offer you Exhibit A to make my case. My, ga- my guest is the executive director of a nonprofit that had a crisis. I asked her to tell her story to you, to diagnose the crisis and the steps she took, because every step along the way, my guest made good choices, very good choices. I chose this topic and this guest because I want you to hear how a crisis can be managed well, and it is because my fondest hope is that my guest story will ignite you to go there, to sit your optimistic selves down and plan for the worst. There may be a more upbeat podcast you could listen to, but not one this important. Can I entice you to stay by telling that this crisis, telling you that this crisis involves a dog named Polly? Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. I want you to listen to my guest intro carefully because her career path is totally relevant to the story she will tell. After college, Emily Clem began her professional career as a community organizer for Family Matter Chicago, working in the trenches, aka the streets, on issues from affordable housing to education, from there to development director. Then she relocated to Chicago Heights and began volunteering as a dog walker at South Suburban Humane Shelter, from there to the board, and then on to become the executive director. Under her leadership, just passing the 10-year mark, she introduced low-cost spay and neuter along with low-cost vet services. And what was once a shelter with a 50% live release rate is now at 90%. Emily, welcome. Thank you so much. So your crisis story has two parts. It would be a very short podcast with fewer takeaways if there wasn't a second part. So we need to start with part one. It began on Wednesday, January 17th. Can you tell us what happened and what you did? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as many of my nonprofit colleagues know, uh, we're sort of almost always on call as leaders, but to get a call at six o'clock in the morning um, is a bit rare, even for me. Um, So my phone rang at six and uh, it was my shelter manager, Megan, who was letting me know about something major that had just happened. Um, We have our spay neuter clinic is located separately from the shelter. So every morning, a kennel attendant goes from the clinic to the shelter to take the pets who are getting spayed or neutered um, to the clinic. And he had called her that morning, January 17th, to tell her that when he was on his way back to the clinic with the dogs in the van, he saw a dog tied to a stop sign. And of course, you know, his what he said is his instinct was to pull over and to try to rescue the dog. 
When he pulled over, uh, someone came up behind him and held a gun to his head and then took the dog that had been tied to the stop sign and then got into the van and took Polly, who was an American bulldog, uh, apparently a special American bulldog mix uh, breed. Um, and so he was uh, upset. He called Megan. Megan said, uh, we need to call the police. She called me. Um, the police came and met us at the shelter. And he shared that he really couldn't identify the, the individual. It was dark. Uh, and and so, so that was the story. And we filed the police report. And I... Of course, we were horrified for him. That was my first concern, was that my staff member had just gone through a very traumatic event. Um, so we sent him home and told him we'd be in touch and to be well and to let us know if he needed anything. And um, and then I decided that we needed to get this story out into the community as fast as possible. It was on a busy street. Someone might have seen something as they drove past. Um, if we got Polly's picture out there, my hope was that someone would notice a neighbor that suddenly had a new dog <laughs> um, or, you know, might see her going for a walk. So I immediately made a Facebook post uh, that had her picture and shared the details of the story um, so that people could start engaging with it and sharing with it. I knew it was something that people would want to do their part to help, uh, you know, through sharing the post. And how did the, uh, as you started to put this word out, did people really respond? I mean, did you get a lot of responses? Oh, yes. Yeah. It was pretty immediate that the shares just started jumping, jumping, jumping. And um, it was, you know, over 200 shares, which was roughly 10,000 people that had seen the post just within a half an hour. Um, and so while that was happening, I texted um, some news reporters that I had their phone numbers in my phone, and they immediately responded back that this was a story they wanted to cover. And so they were en route to the shelter um, while we were doing the social media. So there's two things. One, you moved really fast. Um, you engaged the community and uh, for those of you who are listening closely on that guest introduction, what did we remember about Emily Clem's background? I'll give you a minute. Yes, I heard you. Yes, she had a community organizer background. Let me tell you what, I think it's a um, the kind of background that is really sets you up super nicely to be an executive director. So, um uh, I, a certain president of the United States actually started out as a, as a community organizer too, as I remember. Um, yes, he did. Yes, indeed he did. And he was also from Chicago. Yes, he was. <laughs> so, um, so you took your community organizer skills. I heard media, which we'll come back to. The word was out fast, far, wide. Um, you made uh, SSHS look proactive and really on brand in terms of really caring for and nurturing those animals that are in your care. Sounds great. Now, we could actually just end the podcast here, uh, but we didn't find out what happened to Polly. And there's a, um, there's a part two, which is actually um, a much tougher story to tell. So let's go there. Um, what happens then? 
Yeah. So NBC was the first uh, reporter. We've uh, we've had a great relationship with them. So they they came out and uh, we did some interviews here at the shelter. And then it's media. So they wanted to make the story sort of as dramatic as they could. So they wanted to film the stop sign where the dog had been tied um, in, in part of his story. So we were at the stop sign doing some remote uh, footage um, and First, my staff called and said that there were two more news crews at the shelter. So, you know, I needed to wrap up with NBC to get back to the shelter. And then my phone rang and it was the chief of police for Chicago Heights. And he asked me where I was and I told him and he said, OK, I need you to um, walk away so that the reporters can't hear you. <laughs> And so I said, well, that can't be good. <laughs> so, so he proceeded to tell me that they were having trouble um, reaching my staff member to continue the interviews regarding the incident that had occurred. So they had first contacted him and had asked him to come back into the station to continue the interview, um, you know, so they can draw out any, any other details about the perpetrator. Um, if they, you know, engage in a longer interview. And when he refused to do that, they said, um, okay, well, we, you know, we understand you're the victim in this. We'll come to you. So we'll, we'll come to your house or meet you somewhere. And he also refused that. And so what the chief said to me is it's not a good sign. Um, when the victim is unwilling to, to be a part of the investigation, it's a red flag for us. And I said, so what are you saying? <laughs> what, what is, what is the... What does this red flag mean? And he said, well, at this point, it's just a red flag because I don't I don't have any other information. So I said, well, I'm literally with news crews right now. So I guess I should just, you know, continue. And he said, yeah, until we have further information, you know, just continue. So uh, we wrapped up with NBC. I came back to um, to the shelter and um, and was doing more interviews uh, with two other news stations that had arrived. So he did, he had not told you anything that kept you from continuing the search for the dog, correct? Correct. Correct. Right. So my focus was still getting this story out because I had no other reason to believe that that wasn't the right path um, to take. And what? And so this all started. I, I feel like um, I feel like I'm on NCIS or something. <laughs> but um, this all started at six a.m. What time was it now? So it's about nine thirty. 10 o'clock. Okay. Now. Okay. So you're crawling with news crews. Yep. yep. Um, and so I had just finished two more news stations and my phone rang again and it was the chief. And so I stepped back uh, to the back part of the shelter and um, he said, so I have to let you know that uh, your staff member just walked into the police station and confessed that he made the entire story up. Uh, that he had taken Polly and given Polly to a friend and that he had confessed to that and that he would be charged um, with falsifying a police report. <laughs> and so I just. Um, so, what, so, so you're, so you're in, you're in your office. Are you by yourself? No, I had stepped because the news crews were in our front lobby. So I had stepped into our back like intake area. And so I had three staff members <laughs> standing around me um, as I'm having this phone call. And they, so they report to me that the color just drained from my face. <laughs> like I went super pale and that I sat down in the chair immediately. Um, 
And so, so I said to the chief, you know, I, I have news crews here right now. And, uh, and he said, um, well, you know, I would ask them not to run the story. And I, I don't even remember what I said to him, but I think I said, uh, I don't think that's an option. I think they will anyway, you know? And, um, and so he then, was suggesting that he was suggesting that, that <laughs> women, was he suggesting that you keep those tens of thousands of people out looking for a dog that was no longer needed to be uh, found? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is yeah. clearly why he's a chief of police and not an executive director <laughs> of a nonprofit. <laughs> Which is exactly what I thought. And, you know, I, I, I want to say I really thank the police for their thoroughness in investigating this. It was a dog napping, you know, I mean, there was a gun involved. So of course it was more serious, but you know, I, from his perspective, that was the best thing to do. Um, and obviously as we're going to keep talking about, that wasn't the best step from my perspective. I also want, I also want to make sure that people who are listening, um, okay. So we have a dog, this is a dog napping. Mm-hmm. And you might be, you might be, you know, driving to work or on the elliptical machine thinking crisis. Well, yes, crisis. And secondly, um, if I had, if I had brought you a, um, you know, some kind of horrifying, completely and utterly catastrophic crisis, I believe it would have been much easier for you to say, oh, that would never happen to us. And so I want you to be listening to, I would love for you to be listening to this story in the spirit in which is intended, which is how would you extrapolate the choices you would make based on the story that you're hearing here? So that's, that's actually what I feel is like kind of the teachable moment about this podcast. And it doesn't, you know, whether it's a kind of an easier end because we're talking about a dog, which by the way, doesn't make it any easier for some people. It makes it a lot harder. So anyway, it doesn't matter what the topic is that the issue is what the lessons are. So the chief of police says, ah, tell them not to run the story. And you say, I don't think I can really do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said, I don't think that's an option. Um, and I, and I need to let you go <laughs> basically is what I said to him. I need, I need to hang up with you because they're still here. And so I hung up the phone. I told my staff, the truth, uh, who were standing there watching me. And I said, I have to call my board chair. I have to call Barbara and, and we have to tell people the truth. And before you made that call to Barbara, the board chair, Mm -hmm. um, did you have a lot of anxiety about, so uh, oftentimes nonprofit executive directors have a lot of, you know, have a lot of anxiety about sharing bad news with your board chair. Mm-hmm. How'd you feel? So, so Barbara and I have really worked on our relationship based on your suggestion that the relationship is a twin engine plane and that she and I are co-piloting the organization together. Uh, she is really responsive to every new idea that comes up in terms of how a nonprofit board should be run. She supports all of my work through the nonprofit leadership lab. We've transformed our board meetings because of everything that I've learned in the lab. So, so I'm not 
saying that all of that came consciously to my forefront <laughs> before mm-hmm. I called her. Mm-hmm. But because we had that foundation of the relationship, I knew that whatever we worked out and whatever I suggested, she would support me in it. And that's something that I feel so critical about that because we had already worked on building that foundation, I could rest upon it during this crisis. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so what did she have to say? I mean, she was in I was going to ask you, so did you approach it to say, here's what I think we ought to do? What do you think? Yeah. So, so obviously she was in shock, just like everybody who hears the story first. And, um, and I said, we have to tell people, I have to tell people the truth. I have to go talk to those news crews. I have to call NBC back and ask them to re-record an interview with me if they're going to run with the story, which of course they're going to run with the story. It's an, it's still an interesting story. It's just a different story than it was originally. Um, and I need to do, I need to go on Facebook as soon as possible and tell folks. And she said, I completely agree with you. What can I do? And I said, I don't want the rest of the board to find out about it on Facebook. So will you please contact the rest of the board? Because I don't have time to take that step. And she said, absolutely. And we hung up. Did you, um, so let me just um, hit the pause button for one second. And so yeah. you have all, so a lot of times um, executive directors seek out advice from, you know, sort of an array of people before they make a decision. But in a, in a situation like this, when, uh, frankly, when media is involved, you don't have a lot of time. So did you basically say, okay, if I get the staff in alignment and if Barbara gets the board in alignment, then we're good to go? Yes. I, so things that were coming into my mind as, as I was making these decisions sort of on a split second basis were um, sort of basic values, which are that I felt horrified that our community would think that I slash SSHS deceived them in some way. We have worked really hard to build a culture of transparency um, with our organization. And so to my first, that was my first fear was that they would think we lied about it or somehow, I'm not even sure I can articulate that, but I was just so afraid that they would feel malice towards, uh, towards us as an organization. And so my first instinct was we have to make it so clear that it was not our intention to deceive our stakeholders. And, and we have to then make it clear how, how wonderful it is that Polly is safe Right. And that um, she was on her way back to us. And 20 minutes or so later, the police had recovered her and and brought her back to the shelter. Um, So that's, you know, that's my second message. Polly is safe. And um, and then I, you know, I wanted my third message to be that we uh, we there would be a consequence Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the staff member Um, and that, you know, we just apologized that we were sorry. And so that all came in with my media training that I had received as a community organizer that you control the story or the story controls you. And that comes into my mind all of the time um, in different circumstances. And that's what kept rising to the forefront on this one, that if the news were to break that to break the story before I did, then I think it definitely damaged my credibility and the organization's. 
Um, so I sort of felt, so I guess to answer your question, I felt like I don't have time <laughs> to go try to call a media consultant or a PR person. Like I need to go with my instincts yeah, on this. That's, uh, well, and you didn't, I mean, but really the other thing is that you were, <clears throat> you had connected with your board chair your board chair had your back, completely agreed with you. You're so did, and and so too did your staff. So in many ways, I mean, I think you had the key stakeholders uh, th- that you were able to connect with. You had them, and boy, I, I just can't I can't say enough about the three key message piece. I mean, I've had a lot of media training as well, and I can't tell you how valuable that three key message thing is. not just in media, but like at fundraisers, at donor lunches, it's, uh, it is really sort of very core to good communications. So, um, so there you go. So, um, so you went out and you, so, so tell me what happened then you went out and talked to these reporters. So I went out, I, I pulled the reporters aside and I said, so here's what I've just learned. This is the truth. And if you're going to run with the story, will you allow me to re-record an interview <clears throat> to a person? They said, absolutely. Um, we are still going to run with the story because as I said, it's still interesting and, and we're happy to re-record an interview with you. So, um, so the two that were still here allowed me to re-record the interviews. And then I called NBC and they sent the reporter back out. And, um, and so I re-recorded the interview with her and then, excuse me, I had, uh, I, I ran over to our spay neuter clinic because again, I didn't want that staff to hear about it from anyone other than me and told them and then came back and I grabbed a staff member and I said, okay, we got to go Facebook live. <laughs> and, um, and we sat down and uh, I told her, you have to face the phone away from me because I don't want to see any comments as they start coming up because, I really was fearing negativity. I was fearing a negative response. And, um, and so I need to get my piece out without being interrupted by seeing people's words. So what did you anticipate they were going to say? Um, and, and like how irresponsible you were to hire somebody. I mean, the only thing they could presumably go after you for is how, how irresponsible of you to hire someone who would actually basically steal a dog and lie about it. Yeah, I think that was a tangible part of my fear. I also just, and I think again, everyone listening can can sympathize with social media and what people say and, and type in a forum where they feel sort of, you know, anonymity, even if though you're not. Um, I, I'm never surprised by people's reactions that I would not have predicted <laughs> that happen on social media. So, so I don't even know that I can, you know, art, fully articulate what my fear was. I just was fearing the worst. And right. Well, it was, it was that kind of day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So if you're in, so you were in that sort of worst case scenario frame of mind, Exactly. we are, um, we are talking with Emily Clem, who is the executive director of South Suburban Humane Shelter in Chicago. Uh, she is, uh, has been there, uh, in, for a decade and, um, is, 
conducting a little bit of an anatomy of a crisis in an effort to try to tease out lessons learned, takeaways, things to consider. And, um, uh, and so I want to get to, um, did you script? So what was it? So you said, I'm going to go on Facebook live and I'm going to communicate to the people who have been following the story and who follow SSHS. Um, how did you approach doing the video? Yeah. So, so one thing that stuck in my mind is that whenever you see an apology video, so well for whatever it is, a product gone wrong or a scandal, political scandal, whatever it is, um, they're always reading a statement. And I get why that has to be the case because mm -hmm. legal reasons. Um, but it always feels disingenuous to me. And some people read their statements better than others, of course, but I think on the whole, it always feels a little canned to me. And so, so my first instinct was to say, I'm just going to talk because I know what my talking points are and I know what I want the audience to hear from me. So I feel that it would, it would be the best in this situation for them just to see my face and to hear me talk. So I ran through, you know, very quickly in my brain, sort of the outline of what I wanted to say, but then we just hit record and I started talking. And I also you know, you not even have notes. No, I had no notes. No, I, I also knew that I would become emotional during talking about it because I, you know, I am, I am an emotional person and, and I also knew that that was not going to be a bad thing because people needed to truly feel from me how sorry I was and to feel the, the, the sadness that I felt that they had been taken on this deceptive ride with us, you know, during throughout the day. Um, this is, um, it's not just a transparency thing. It's an authenticity thing. Yeah. Yes. And I, and so I, I did let my voice break because it did naturally. Um, and, and I've heard from people that feeling my emotion was emotional for them and that that really helped. I think it helped convey the message. Um, and I think we shouldn't be afraid of sharing emotion because it does build even more of a relationship with our community um, when they know how passionately we care about the mission that we're driving. Um, the video that Emily is referencing, we will have a link below the podcast um, on my blog. So at Joan Gary with two rs.com. So you will experience what I experienced, which was, which was what led me to email Emily and say, would you be on my podcast? This video, how long is the video? Do you remember? Uh, about four minutes, maybe That's three and a half. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was completely blown away by this video. The authenticity of it comes through so clearly. And I was blown away by, you, could, you can also tell that it was not scripted. I didn't know if you had somewhere somebody holding up some bullet points for you, but I couldn't see your eyes wavering. And I pay a lot of attention to 
stuff like this. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a pretty remarkable thing you did. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so what was the reaction? Overwhelmingly positive. Um, I, I didn't want to even see any of it for a while after I had done it. I just said, I I need to live in the bubble that, uh, everything is fine (laughs) as a reaction to it for, for a little bit. And, um, it was actually my, my sister-in-law who had been, you know, following along with all of this on Facebook. And she texted me and she said, you've got to go read the comments. You've got to go read them because it will make you feel better. And so I, I went and we started reading through and it was overwhelmingly positive. People were so grateful that we had, uh, reacted and responded as quickly as we did. Um, many people were saying things like, this is why we love the South Suburban Humane Society because you are so transparent and, um, and, and we love you as a leader because you care so much. Um, and it just, started getting shared and shared and shared. So it ended up, the apology video ended up going more viral than the original poly post. Um, so I feel like we reached the majority, if not all of the people who had been following along on the story from the very beginning. Uh, it's a, it's a really quite a good story. I mean, it's a good story. A, a, a quick question. Where's Polly right now? Mm-hmm. Polly got adopted by one of my staff members. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So she is, so we get lots of updates and pictures and she's living a fabulous life with two brothers. Um, And, and I think it's the perfect ending to her journey uh, just so that we can, she can stay in our lives because she's become such a huge part, part of the fabric of our story and, and each individual staff member here. Yeah, that's a, fabulous. Um, so let's debrief for with a few questions. So obviously our, our listeners have to be wondering if there were any clues about your staff members' behavior. So if we're, if we're talking about the world of nonprofit management, did you know that there was a challenging employee that you were thinking you needed to do something about? Was this a complete blindside? Like, where does it fall in as you, as you look back and say, oh, my goodness? Complete blindside is the, the right answer. Um, he, he'd worked for us for two years. He was a young man, 22. Um, he had never even, he'd called off once for being sick in two years, <laughs> one day. Um, he went above and beyond. He was always, we're a very small staff. Everyone does much more than they should be doing as a staff person, like all nonprofits. And he had jumped right into that. He had, you know, helped out in any way that he could. Um, we're because we're such a small staff, we're all very close. So, you know, we do feel a family like atmosphere. And so it it wasn't just a shock to me, to all of his coworkers and his direct supervisor, total, total that's, shock. That's in fact, in in some ways that's a much better scenario because there would have been an awful lot of guilt on the part of one or more of you if this was an employee that you were sort of, you know, recognizing had some issues and that you had not yet done something about. So it became relatively guilt-free from that perspective, it would seem to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, we've 
learned subsequently going through the the criminal proceedings on the issue that he didn't even have a speeding ticket. <laughs> I mean, he had <laughs> no true. He had no prior criminal record whatsoever. So it was an incredibly, incredibly stupid and poor choice that he made. If my mother were still alive, she would listen to this podcast and then she'd call me later and she'd say, she'd say, well, you have enough speeding. <laughs> you have enough speeding tickets <laughs> to cover like six people. Um, all right. So, um, it's funny how people just keep playing in your ear. Um, so one of the things that I know about crises is that there are often um, clues. There are often, there are, the, te the technical term for them is called prodromes, which are essentially things that happen ahead of time that lead you to recognize that something might come down the pike. So, and sometimes people pay attention to those things and sometimes they do not. So for example, um, if we think about uh, Penn State and a sex abuse scandal at Penn State, there were lots of pieces of evidence as people looked back about things that had happened. <clears throat> there were absolutely pieces of information that existed that led people to understand that this would, this sexual abuse scandal would in fact happen. So I remember asking you in the pre-interview whether or not you had had anything that had happened. And you, <laughs> as I recall, you couldn't really remember it. And then later on in the conversation, you said, oh, well, there was that time that... Yes. And what time was that, Emily? Yeah. yeah. So it's going back to 2015. Um, two teenagers stole a dog from the shelter. And we have video monitoring cameras in the shelter. So the minute that we realized the dog was missing and we suspected that it had been these two individuals, we went to the cameras saw them on camera taking the dog out of the cage and out the side door of the shelter and getting in a car. Um, and so we immediately contacted, we made a Facebook post and got, um, the dog's name was Cheezer. Uh, we got Cheezer's picture out there, uh, contacted the media. It's a story they wanted to cover. They came out, we did interviews. It was about Four or five hours later, um, the teenagers' parents turned them in to the police because they saw it on Facebook <laughs> and and knew that they had that was their son <laughs> that had taken um, the dog. And so they returned the dog to the police station, and you know, Cheezer lives happily ever after um, because of social media and because we got his image out there totally. so quickly. And in fact, the reason uh, it was so interesting talking to you earlier, because the reason that that came up was actually not because I asked you whether there were clues. I believe I asked you if you had any regrets and you said, the only thing I guess I wonder sometimes is if I, if I should have waited a little bit longer, but back in 2015, when those teenagers stole the dog moving quickly, in fact, ended up being the key to the, you know, the, the, the key to the case. So, yeah. So, That's right. um, you, you clearly you learned that moving quickly has uh, significant advantages and you had nothing to make you think that this was anything other than something that had ha like what had happened in 2015. Now, the other thing that I, I, you can't help but miss in Emily's story is that, <clears throat> that she had connections to the media that she was able to get the media to come back. She made a request of the media. 
that so often people believe that the media gets to control everything and you just have to do what they tell you. And I just have been really impressed as I've heard this story that uh, Emily was able to play into what the media wanted and also had some, clearly had some kind of relationship. And I wondered if you could speak to how is it that you had developed relationships with the press? So in our line of work, you know, there are rescues and stories that come up that are interesting for the media to cover. And the most recent one was in October of this last year of 17. Uh, we rescued 52 dogs, 5252, <laughs> from one house. It was a hoarding, uh, puppy mill breeding <sighs> operation. And Uh, And so I went with my staff to do the rescue and and I was in the van as a passenger riding back, already reaching out to media because that was going to be our fastest way to get the resources that we needed to help these dogs. Um, it, It was not, it's not about the publicity of it for the organization. It's about people the quickest way to reach people with information, um, people who you don't already have contacts with, and that that's the media. Quick question. A quick question. Of how did um, 50 dogs into your shelter represented a lot more dogs than you typically have there? Absolutely. Yeah, it's okay. about uh, three okay. times. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and they were medically needy. Uh, we didn't even really know at that point all of the medical needs, which ended up being over $30,000 um, in surgeries and things that they needed. So, so, but I knew that there would be medical needs just based on the condition that they were in. Um, so I had reached out to NBC, just the general number first, and they said, um, we probably want to cover it, but we'll get back to you. And, um, and so they, then they contacted me late that night and said, um, we probably want to cover it in the morning. Would somebody be available to let us into the shelter? And I said, yes, just let me know. Here's my cell phone. So I got, a, I got a call from them at three o'clock in the morning. Um, on that next day and asked me if I could meet the crew there at four. <laughs> did you, I'm and, assuming you changed out of your pajamas. I did. I did, but just barely. Good, good choice. <laughs> Wiped some mascara on and away we went lip gloss. So I tell my staff lipstick and mascara is all you need. <laughs> um, so, so I met the crew there and they were so grateful that we had accommodated them. And so they ended up staying, they did live broadcast uh, remotes during the whole morning hour. So from 4 a.m. until 9 a.m. <laughs> they were here with us, um, showing the dogs, talking to me. Um, almost immediately, people started coming with donations. I mean, I burst into tears at 6.30 in the morning because this little old couple had um, saw us on the news, had gone through their blankets and towels to bring us blankets and towels and a check at 6.30 in the morning. Um, So, you know, to me, the media is not something to be feared. To me, the media is a powerful tool that we have in our arsenal to tell our story. 
And so because that, um, because I had built this relationship with this reporter in the morning, I, she gave me her cell phone number. So I was able to then to text her the morning of the poly incident. Um, and we had other news crews throughout that next day of the, the 52 rescue, um, who also gave me their cell phone. So you file all those away and I'm not just a nameless person. I'm Emily at South Suburban. So, um, so they all took my calls and that's how the media coverage for Polly happened so quickly. Great story. And so so much lesson in there is the, not only is the media not to be feared, but the media is part of uh, the media are just a critical component of the village that you build in your nonprofit organization around your nonprofit organization that you create relationships. They are not, it's not just simply a transactional thing of here's a press release, which, you know, journalists hardly ever read anymore, but you know, here's a press release. Could you come to our event? It's just not like that. If you think of it that way, it's, it's terribly short-sighted. And if you think about it the way Emily is thinking about it is they become part of your, you know, they've really become part of your village and, um, and they get, and what Emily did by getting, you know, some people would get a call at three o'clock in the morning and say, are you kidding me? But if you, if, if you are responsive to them, it can make all the difference. I want to ask you a couple of other quick questions before we close out here. In your sector, uh, in, this, in, the, in the sector in which you operate, um, what can go wrong if a crisis is handled poorly? So, you know, it's our field, all of nonprofits are emotionally charged, but particularly animal welfare related causes are highly emotional for people because we have lives in our hands, quite literally lives depend on the work that we do. Um, and so I, I, I can share how poorly a crisis can go best by sharing what's happened in Chicago over the last couple of months with a different animal shelter. Um, an area animal shelter had a an upper respiratory outbreak, which turns out to be the canine flu. Um, and they announced sort of abruptly that they were closing the shelter down and gave no further information. Right away, rumors started swirling about what was potentially happening, which the, the, the first rumor, which ended up being the pervasive rumor, was that instead of treating the dogs who were sick, they were going to euthanize them. And so people started contacting the news media because calls and inquiries to the shelter were going unanswered and they were silent on their social media pages. So the news crews started showing up to their shelter and they were turned away. They were denied interviews and they were turned away. So truthfully, I don't know whether the rumors were true or not, but the public refuses to believe otherwise because they didn't respond to them. It was almost two days later before leadership at the shelter made a statement saying those rumors aren't true. Um, we care about the pets in our care. You need to trust that we're doing what's right. And I remember thinking the thing is because of the way that was handled, people are not going to trust that what Correct. you're doing is right. Even if you are, even if you are doing what is right. 
Um, and so, you know, that it happened only a few weeks after the poly <laughs> incident. So to me, that was just even further reinforcement that you have to respond quickly and with transparency to engender that trust with our communities, which is critical for our missions. Yeah. The, the people fill silence with their own stuff. Don't they? I mean, if, if, if you, if you give people a big gap, yes, they're absolutely. just going to go and they don't always go. Oh, I'm sure everything's fine. They're going to go, they close that shelter. What's happening to those dogs. And then before you know it, there's going to be buzz out there. It's going to be really, really, really different to, difficult to counter. So I think that last, last yes. real last question. Um, what do you think are your key takeaways that you would also sort of translate into advice for our listeners? Yeah, I, you know, I shared there's there's a couple quotes that I kept repeating and that I think are important. And the first is that I sometimes don't know how I got through that day, January 17th, um, but it taught me that I can do hard things and that when you have the the tools and you've built up, um, you've read the crisis management chapter of Joan Gary's book. Um, and, and, and you, you know, you have all of that in your brain that it will come to you when you need to use it and that you can, you can do those hard things. Um, I think the second huge takeaway for me was control the story or the story controls you. And I've said that many times to my team before that day. And, um, and now they're really tired of me saying it because <laughs> it's absolutely true. Um, and so it's guiding even what's happening, you know, now and today in our organization, I'm, I'm looking at everything more through that lens. Um, and then I, you know, I think the, the last big takeaway for me is how important relationship building is yeah. with your board, with your staff, with your community, so that when you have a time of crisis, you can trust the results because you know that the relationship is solid enough to carry you forward. Good lessons all. And, um, and I, I, I just have to go back again. I, I've always thought being a community organizer taught you a lot of important skills, but it is so many of the things that you, the, the, the things you just described, that's, that's what you learn. I mean, you, you are trained as a community organizer and those, you know, those are things that came with you from that training and clearly, uh, for your love of the mission of your organization. So, um, Emily, thanks so much for sharing the story and, uh, the lessons and, uh, and thanks for all you did for Polly and for, frankly, for your staff and the community out there, because nonprofit leaders, um, when they do actually exhibit that kind of transparency and authenticity, it kind of lifts everybody up. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for letting me tell the story. I think it's so important. Um, I couldn't agree more. So, uh, so that's the story of Polly. Polly is living happily ever after. South Suburban Humane Society is thriving. And we are going to let you go. But before we do, just a couple of quick things. Um, we are running a free video workshop called How to Build a Thriving Nonprofit. It is starting on April 17th, and you can sign up at Thriving Nonprofit, singular, thrivingnonprofit.org. There's also a great community on a Facebook page called Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary. Please go over there and sign up. 
You can see regular blog content in written and video form at my blog at joangary.com with two R's. You can join the over 100,000 people who are there every month from over 170 countries, and it is all designed for both board and staff leaders. That's it for me. Um, Really, I do hope you heard this story and thought, I need to think about what would happen in my organization if something went awry. That's, I think that's why Emily agreed to do this, and that's why I'm here today. And um, so I hope it does ignite your thinking about that. And until next time, thanks so much for all the work that you do. Take care. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.